This is the Everything EV Podcast by EV Powered. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Everything EV Podcast, the podcast dedicated to everything electric. I'm your host, Charlie Atkinson, and in these episodes, we'll be discussing everything to do with electric travel. So whether it be cars, bikes, boats, or even planes, we'll have it covered. We'll also be speaking to people from within the industry to get their views on the EV space, as well as other features such as electric car reviews, electric motorsport coverage, and much, much more along the way. This podcast is available on all streaming platforms, so be sure to subscribe to wherever you get your podcast from to receive every single episode as soon as it's released. And please do go back and check out all our other episodes too. In today's episode, we're joined by Stephen Lambert of McLaren Applied. In his role as Head of Electrification, Stephen is at the forefront of McLaren Applied's work in the EV automotive sector, and he's here today to talk about the challenges the industry has faced over the past few years, how electric motorsport has influenced the new age of EVs, and what the future of the sector might look like. Well, yes, yeah, Steve, first, welcome to the podcast, first of all. Now, for, any, for anyone who's listening that doesn't know what McLaren Applied is or what McLaren Applied do, I'm sure many people will be familiar with the brand McLaren, but what is the difference between McLaren and McLaren Applied and, and how does your role work within that? Hi, Charlie. Yeah, thanks for having me. So um, I guess the way I usually explain it is we're, we're not the Formula One team. We don't we don't go around to the weekend racing cars and we're not the supercar company. We're, we're, we're sort of in between. So we develop technology um, and that technology typically gets used in motorsport or gets used in automotive um, or actually in other industries as well, particularly the rail and public transport sectors. Um, so we're an independent company and we're actually spun out of McLaren Group um, last year. Um, but we develop technology, we develop products, and then we commercialise and industrialise those products. So we have a number of different areas of focus. Uh, motorsport, of course, where we provide a standard ECU into every single Formula One car, IndyCar, NASCAR, and many, many other series that we support. Uh, public transport, where we, we develop connectivity solutions. Um, but the part where I, I work and what I look after is in automotive, where we develop next generation power electronics um, that can be used um, in the electric vehicles of the future. Yeah. So obviously we're talking about electric vehicles of the future then, but how much, when you just give us a bit of an overview of the different sectors that McLaren Applied um, works in. And like you said, there's the automotive sector, there's um, motorsport as well. So what's the, what would you say the, the split is between those different sectors? Is it quite an even split or is there one sort of primary focus of the company? No, so the primary focus today of the company or the, the, the largest share of the work that we do um, is in motorsport. So this is where we develop um, cutting-edge electronics. Um, a lot of that used in Formula One, in Formula E, uh, NASCAR, IndyCar, um, Superbikes, um, MotoGP, any any professional motorsport series that you can think of probably has an element of McLaren Applied technology in. That could be from our sensors, so we do ruggedized um, sensors for use in motorsport um, to ECUs, so the control system that makes those vehicles uh, go around reliably, reliably <clears throat> to our uh, software that's used to analyze data and visualize data. Um, so, for example, if you've ever looked at a, uh, if you've ever, ever watched Formula One and you've seen the people in the pits looking at a, an array of screens, it'll usually be a screen with a black background with a number of colored lines on. Um, that's McLaren Applied Software that's being used to visualize the data that comes off Formula One cars. Um, so the main bulk of what we do today um, is motorsports and all around electronics and data. 
we then have two other business units which um, um, are sort of up and coming business units and our engines for growth for the future. So public transport is looking at connectivity um, in public transport. So um, particularly in uh, rail, um, but also looking at buses at the moment, we have a product called Active Antenna, which is where we can reduce a lot of the cabling and wiring that's associated with antenna systems, bring a lot of the smart technology onto the antenna itself, and then reduce a lot of cost um, and weight and, of course, CO2 that's involved in uh, cabling and uh, ensuring you've got communication around uh, around a train. There's, there's a significant amount of copper used um, in ensuring data can get around a train, and a lot of our systems um, help you to reduce the amount of copper needed for that. Um, and then the automotive side of the business, um, where I work, is looking at our power electronics. So we have two core competencies. One is uh, power electronics. Uh, the other is uh, functional safety. So developing safety critical systems, um, which is very important for automotive. So we've been focusing a lot on developing um, inverters and power electronics for electric vehicles. And that is, that's really where we're focusing. We're looking to be in production by 2025 and have already announced a number of customers in the public domain that's using our technology. Yeah, I appreciate you. your main focus is on the automotive side. And I want to sort of link into that because obviously at the moment it's, it's, a, it's an important time for McLaren in, um, in motorsport terms because of their, obviously their debut in Formula E. They're involved in Extreme as well, which are two of the, the biggest forms of electrified motorsport at the minute. So obviously McLaren has that heritage in motorsport, but how is the that technology and the, their participation in, in those sports and those disciplines impacting the, the work that you do on the on the automotive side? That's a great question. I mean, my, my, my background, I spent some time in, in Formula One, uh, myself in McLaren Racing. Um, and, you know, Formula One is a great place to really develop technology, to understand it really, really well. <clears throat> it may not die. I mean, in the old days, of course, technology could directly go over to uh, to, to mainstream automotive. Um, there was an old adage of race on a Sunday, have it in the dealerships by the Monday. Um, you know, and you, you've got great, great examples of the disc brake um, coming from motorsport into, into mainstream automotive. But things are a little bit more complicated now. The technology is more complicated. Um, but we do see that trickle down of technology from Formula One, from motorsport into more mainstream automotive. <clears throat> and a, a good example of that really is the hybrid systems that we see in Formula One. So back in 2008, uh, the FIA um, launched um, the first curve systems um, in Formula One, or some of the teams in, in the Formula One had curve systems. Um, and this then evolved into the ERS systems that we have today, which is um, where you have an energy recovery system on the engine and on the uh, turbocharger and the exhaust. Um, but a lot of the learning that we get from that directly trickles down into mainstream automotive is trickling down. So one great example that I can give you is... Um, Formula One and uh, Formula E, and to some extent Formula One, is all about efficiency. So the electric systems and the hybrid systems are all about increasing the efficiency of the drivetrain. Um, Formula E is completely about efficiency. All the cars are the same apart from the driver and the drivetrain. You're limited on power. Um, so efficiency is a key differentiator. Similarly, in Formula One, the ERS system is there to make the engine more efficient, so you need less fuel. You're not allowed to refuel anymore. So if you can carry less fuel, you'll be lighter and therefore you'll be faster. And what we're seeing now is a parallel happening in the automotive industry where we, we, we like to call it the third wave of, of automotive. 
the first wave was the sort of early adopters, the Teslas, uh, the Fiskers, uh, Modec vans, um, where you, you had sort of early, early adopters coming into the market with uh, EV technology and EV vehicles. Um, we're in the second wave at the moment, which is where there's a scramble to bring vehicles to market. Um, you can't go into a dealership now without seeing an electric vehicle. And then very soon, we're going to transition into the third wave, which is all about efficiency. So to make these electric vehicles more competitive, as more of them come out onto the market, they're going to need to be more efficient. More efficiency means a smaller battery, so the buying cost is less. Uh, more efficiency means less energy needed to go at a given range. Um, so your recharge time is going to be less to go at a given range. More efficiency means your components can be smaller, so it'll be lighter and it'll need less energy, and there'll be more um, passenger space, for example, um, or the cars will be smaller, have a smaller coefficient of drag. So efficiency has a really, really big impact on how well designed our vehicles are. Um, and so what we're starting to see now is all the work we've done over the last last 10 or 12 years or so in Formula 1 and Formula E to make the most efficient drivetrains um, is going to be directly relevant to what's happening in automotive at the moment. And so that's where we're taking a lot of the technology we've developed in Formula One on the power electronics and bringing that into, into automotive. Yeah, I see what you mean. So those lessons that you've learned over the last however many years from Formula One, Formula E, etc., are now going to be into this third wave of electric vehicles. And it, it's interesting that you talk about this because I was having this uh, conversation, I was on BBC Radio Scotland uh, yesterday talking about um, some of the biggest barriers to EV adoption. And, and people always talk about um, the range and the charging and things like that. But one of the biggest barriers to EV adoption, to mass EV adoption, is, is that cost element, isn't it? So how is the, the work that you guys are doing and the products that you develop and the, the technology that you work with going to help drive that overall price point of electric vehicles down in that third wave? I'm sure you can edit that out. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. So cost is a, uh, is a challenge that needs to be addressed. Um, you know, as the, the EV marketplace uh, becomes more crowded, cost is going to be more of a differentiator. And so what we, the way we're looking at it, the way we're supporting our customers is by helping them understand the impact of optimizing at a system level. So if you go out and you buy the cheapest components for your electric vehicle, for example, um, and that, that's a strategy that, you know, some OEMs have taken to get EVs onto the market, you know, you'll have an okay electric vehicle, but it's not going to be optimized. And that's okay at the moment where there isn't a lot of choice, particularly in certain segments. As, as there becomes more choice, it's all about optimizing um, across a drivetrain. So the example we give, and it comes back a little bit to efficiency, is with the inverter that we develop. So if you have, we, we use a technology called silicon carbide. Um, so this works at 800 volts, and it's a, it's a faster switching um, technology for driving your motor. Um, if you can switch faster, that means you can have a uh, higher speed motor. The motor can rotate at a higher speed because you can control it because you're switching faster. If you have a higher speed motor, um, because, the, because of the way the power equations work, um, it can be lower torque for the same amount of power. If you have a lower torque motor, it means it's a smaller motor, it's a lighter motor, it potentially needs less magnetic materials, um, which are a critical supply chain. And so as you start tending towards, or as you start going into uh, volume production with these technologies, particularly for an electric motor, the cost of that motor will tend towards the raw material costs. So if your motor is smaller, lighter, uses less rare earth magnets, for example, it will be more cost effective. Um, so that, that's one area where actually optimizing the motor and the inverter together actually means 
even if you have to spend a little bit more on the silicon carbide on the inverter, your system cost is, is going to be less. And then when you start bringing in, looking at the battery, now the battery is probably the biggest single um, most expensive part on the on the vehicle by, by a long, long margin. Um, but actually, if you make your drivetrain more efficient by optimizing your motor and your inverter and all of your other consumers on the on the vehicle, then actually you need less energy. And uh, you know we've we've calculated and and there's similar other studies out there at the moment that say if you move to 800 volts and silicon carbide, you can reduce your battery size by around seven percent. We've calculated seven percent. Other studies say between five and ten percent. Um, and so actually. 7% of the cost of your battery is a is a massive, massive um, part of the actual bomb cost of the vehicle. Um, these batteries can be, you know, up to half of the bomb cost of the total vehicle um, at the moment. So actually reducing that makes a big, big difference to the, uh, to the cost of the vehicle. And then, of course, there's the running costs. So the more efficient you are, the less energy you need to get from A to B, and therefore the less energy you're going to use. And so the uh, the lower your energy costs are going to be. Um, of course, we're seeing uh, energy costs rising and this becoming more of a factor as well when, when purchasing EVs. Yeah. So when you talk about that that third wave of electric vehicles, what, what would you say, you're probably better placed to, to answer this than, than I was yesterday. What would you say is a, a sort of realistic timeline for when we're, we're going to have these more cost-effective uh, electric vehicles on, on the market? It's, it's probably... It's the million dollar question. I appreciate I'm asking you to get your crystal ball out here, but as someone who works sort of in the heart of this industry, what are, what sort of timeline are we looking at where we're going to have an industry where there are loads of affordable, cost-effective solutions on the market to help drive that price point down? I think I think we're really at that that knee point. We're really aware that's that's starting to happen. It, if you look over the last couple of years, pre 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 pandemic, there wasn't a lot of there weren't many EVs on the market. They were being developed, but there weren't many on the market. As we went through the pandemic, we saw that the slightly different business models, particularly Tesla, took advantage of this, but the other business models from the EV manufacturers meant that they were able to ship electric vehicles. And actually, we saw a big increase in the number of electric vehicles um, taken to the market. And if you look at the number of electric vehicles that have gone to the market over the last few years, it's, it's almost grown exponentially year on year um, since about 2019, 2020. Um, so we're really at that point where it's just about to get into um, you know, mass, mass market adoption. Um, however, we have seen that slow down a little bit. So the other side of this is with the pandemic, we've seen interruptions in the silicon supply chain. Um, so it's been really difficult to get hold of silicon components, so all of the electronic components that go into vehicles. And that's really hampered, was really hampering electric vehicles at the moment. There's a high demand but they, the manufacturers can't make the vehicles um, to get them out to their customers. So we're seeing the, the silicon supply chain negatively affecting um, get, getting electric vehicles to market, unfortunately. And this is having a little bit of a knock-on effect on R&D. So what are the next vehicles that the OEMs are bringing out? Um, I think you know we were expecting 2025 to be a big year for um, electric vehicles and that sort of mass adoption point. I think, you know, I don't think we're far off that. I think, um, you know, we're definitely at um, at the knee point. So that exponential growth is is happening now, or roughly exponential. Um, so I think somewhere between 25 and 27, we're going to see a lot more cost-effective EVs, EVs coming onto the market. The OEMs are really understanding how to manufacture them, how to get the, you know, get the best value out of the components and, and make the best value vehicles. So I think in the next... Next three to five years, we're going to see 
uh, see a lot more EVs come onto the market, particularly those that are cost effective. Yeah, it's really hin- interesting hearing you talk about that because particularly in, in my job, 2030 is sort of seen as this magic year for electric vehicles where we're going to see flying cars and all this new technology. But on, on the face of it, there's there's a lot of challenges that are presented to the EV industry. So when we have this date of 2030, where obviously there's going to be the, the ban on sale of petrol and diesel cars and the, the world and specifically the UK seemingly has, has to go electric by then, would you say we're we're sort of ahead of that timeline then? That's what I've sort of gathered from from what you're saying there. Uh, I, th- I wouldn't say we're ahead of it. I, I would say we're, we're, we're on to meet that. I think um, it's not, I think I think there's, there's a couple of, um, a couple of issues need to be addressed between now and then. Um, one is the affordability um, of, of the vehicles. You know, there are a lot more affordable cars out now. Um, you know, you can buy plenty of EVs in the, let's say, 30, 35, 40k price range, but there's there's not many below that. And there's there's many, many people that would say, well, that, that's not really affordable. It's better than it was a couple of years ago, but there's still a way to go to make that, that cheap everyday run around um, car as, as an EV. And that, that needs to be addressed. It is being addressed, but it's it's not quite there yet. And the other side of it is making sure there's enough competition in all of the segments. So if you're after a compact SUV, you've got a plethora of vehicles you can choose from at the moment um, in terms of an electric vehicle. As you say, there may not be, there's not much in terms of super minis or cheap cheap motoring about. Um, larger SUVs, for example, estate cars, you know, um, they, they, there aren't really any estate cars on the market that are electric vehicle. And so I think, a, addressing the, the cost piece, particularly at the lower end of the market, um, and B, addressing the, um, ma- making sure there's a wider array of electric vehicles available in all, all segments um, is really where we need to be. I think the technology is pretty much there. It's just now applicating that and to make the most out of it in those two areas. Yeah, absolutely. I did just want to come back to when you spoke about some of the sort of supply chain issues that you've had. And obviously, it's been well documented in the EV industry that there's been semiconductor shortages over the past couple of years. And also, there's been a few issues around the sort of harvesting and mining of raw materials and things like that. So I just wanted to speak to you about some of the challenges that McLaren Applied has faced on, on that side of things and what have been some of the biggest barriers and obstacles that you've had to deal with over the past few years. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in terms of batteries, we uh, we, we do do battery technology. We were the um, uh, supplier of batteries into Formula E <clears throat> up until last year, up until this year. Um, so, you know, we're, we're well used to battery technology, but we don't do that in, in high volumes. It's really the semiconductor supply chain has, has really, really been, been difficult. It was particularly over COVID. It was difficult to get hold of. You know, there were components that, you know, should be on a two-week lead time. That we're being told 52 weeks or um, 100, 100 plus weeks lead time um, for components that you know pre-pandemic were were common were ten a penny, um, and so it's it, one side of it is being able to get hold of the components so that you can actually uh, manufacture the parts. We you know we we had parts where everything was made apart from one component that we just needed to get hold of so that we could manufacture those parts and it's it's a silly little component that you wouldn't otherwise have worried about um from a from a cost point of view the silicon supply chains made things really difficult um we might have to buy parts through brokers for example which adds cost on we may also see a lot more volatility generally um so even if we can get hold of the parts the cost might go up um 
but it's really difficult to forecast that. We're seeing a lot of growth in the automotive industry, particularly around EVs, um, and these require a lot of silicon components. And so the demand is increasing rapidly. However, it takes a long time and a lot of investment to get new fabs, which is where the silicon components are manufactured, uh, up and running and, and set up. You know, these are multi-billion dollar investments with timelines measured in years. So what we're seeing is, yes, there's more capability coming online. Yes, there's more ability to manufacture these components, but also the demand is ramping up at at least the same pace as well. And what that means is not only is price volatile, but availability is volatile. So, you know, are we seeing the same investment in some of the older technologies where, where we may need that? We may be using that technology in some of our components that have been on the market for a number of years, but because it's slightly older, not being invested in because other stuff is being invested in, what does that mean for the availability of those parts, for the cost of those parts? Um, so it's, it's it's a really interesting time to be part of the sort of automotive electronics industry because there's interesting and terrifying at the same time. There's a lot of volatility, um, but also a lot of opportunity if you can if you can manage it well, um, where some of your competitors might not be able to. Yeah, that's quite a nice sort of link into my final question then, really, because ha- have we sort of turned the corner then from those from those challenges? You say it's it's equally volatile, but equally promising as well. So what the, it's quite handy that we're we're doing this interview in January. So what does the, the outlook for for this year look like for, for you guys? So I think on, on the silicon supply chain, it's. You know, we've, we we understand the problems now so we can manage them better. We, you know, over the last 10 or 20 years in the automotive industry, we've moved much more to lean manufacturing, just-in-time manufacturing. So, you know, parts get delivered just in time for when you need them, um, reducing costs, etc. Um, but with the silicon supply chain, you can't do that now. So we're having to move to different models and understanding how we can best manage these models. So buying more components in advance and holding stock on components. It's it's a little bit of a um it's a little bit of a simplistic way of doing it, but it's 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 a way that kind of needs to be done to make sure you can you can build and, and supply products. However, we are understanding where we use these things better compared to where we're not. I don't think the supply chain is going to go back to where it was anytime soon. Um, but I think we're managing it a lot better now. So I think we're going to see less short-term impact in the silicon supply chain. Um, but it's going to become much more difficult to forecast um, where the where the costs are going to be and how, how things are going to impact us. For example, what, where is the cost of energy going to impact us? We're now seeing energy almost as a line item on our bill of materials because the cost impact of energy is so uh, so important. Um, so, you know, that, that that's going to be really, uh, really impactful moving forward. In, in a wider view from McLaren Applied, um, you know, the rest of this year, we, it's going to be a big year for us, particularly in the automotive side. We've announced um, a couple of uh, partnerships and customers recently. Um, we're working with uh, Zinger on their 21C hypercar. Um, that's going into production towards the end of this year. Uh, we also announced a partnership with the Laffey in-wheel motors. Um, and so we're now seeing, we're hoping to see this year, uh, a lot of growth in our automotive business and uh, taking these products onto the market and seeing them in vehicles that you may see on the road towards the end of this year. That's all for this episode. Many thanks for listening. And if you liked it, then please do check out all our other episodes and be sure to subscribe to wherever you get your podcast from to make sure you get every single episode as soon as it's released. For daily news coverage, features and much more, you can also head over to evpowered.co.uk. Thanks once again for listening and we'll see you on the very next episode of the Everything EV podcast.